You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. Let's get our Bibles open to Romans chapter 12. I'll meet you there in just a moment. Welcome to the second premarital counseling session for my daughter, Brooke, and her fiance, David, who will be married in 12 days. And so I told you, I'm just talking to two people. You guys can eavesdrop on the conversation, but uh, we have got to deal with some myths that unmarried people and married people alike sometimes believe. So we're gonna dismantle those myths. Last week, we dealt with this myth Marriage is obsolete. 40% of unmarried people think that marriage is obsolete. And so we learned last week that is not true. That is not true at all. We learned that marriage is good. Marriage is good for you. Married people live longer, are physically healthier, build more wealth, show fewer signs of mental illness, have better sex more often than people who just simply live together or are single. That You don't even have to open the Bible to see that. That's what sociology tells us. But when we do open the Bible, what we find in Proverbs chapter 18, 22 is this. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. That's right. I got you trained now, guys. You, you're on it. I knew that was happening right there. So that brings us to the second myth, and it is this. Are you ready for it? Here's the second myth. Marriage will make me happy. Some of you married people are like, ah, I figured that out a long time ago. Right. But yet some of us actually believe that I would be happy if I could simply find a mate. There, there are single people in here. You're an unhappy single person. You're like, I know that what's missing in my life is if I could just get married, if I could just find a husband, find a wife, I would be happy. And that is not true. If you are unhappy as a single person, you're going to be unhappy as a married person, because the reason you're not happy is not because of the lack of a spouse. The reason you're unhappy is because of you and you bring you into marriage. So we've got to replace this myth. All right. Are you ready for the truth? The truth is not marriage will make me happy. The truth is marriage will make me better. Marriage will make me grow. Marriage will make me change. And if you let it, marriage will make me holy. God will use marriage to get some work done in my life that he otherwise would not get done. Now, before I jump into this, I want to make some disclaimers here. I did not say that married people are better than single people. Don't say that. I didn't say that. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul makes a case in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that it's actually better to remain single in a season and for certain purposes. And so there are advantages to remaining single because you just have to care for, about the Lord's business. You don't have to care about taking care of a wife or a husband. You don't have, you can take risk. You've got more freedom. There's advantages to being single. So be single for the glory of God. Don't waste your singleness. But for the weaker ones of us, we, we get married because we need, we need some work done on us. Okay. I also didn't say this. I've replaced the word happy here, but I do not want you to hear me say that God is not concerned about my happiness. God wants me to be happy. The problem is, is so often we settle for things that are less significant that don't ultimately make me happy. 
things like marriage. We learned last week that marriage is good, but marriage is not ultimate. And marriage can't make me happy. Only God can make me happy. And sometimes God uses marriage to accelerate the work. So I've asked you to open to Romans chapter 12. Now, I just don't want to jump into this. I want you to know where we're at in our Bibles. The book of Romans has 16 chapters. I've asked you to open to Romans 12. The first 11 chapters of Romans is the deepest, richest, most glorious explanation of the gospel that we have in the Bible. And so for 11 chapters, Paul goes into detail about how God saves sinners. He imputes righteousness through justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And he, Jesus died for sinners. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that his overwhelming love comes and rescues us. We read it this uh, just a few minutes ago about how uh, nothing can separate us from the love of God. All of that is concentrated truth in the 11 chapters that precede what we're about to read. It's so glorious that Paul is almost overwhelmed when he gets to the end of chapter 11, and this is what he says in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Verse 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Even marriage is from God and through God and to God. To him be glory forever. Amen. So even marriage is to be done for the glory of God. He finishes chapter 11, starts chapter 12, and the whole tone of the book shifts. It goes into some of the most practical implications of the gospel on human relationships. And so we get down to verse 9, and we are told about 20 rapid-fire imperatives that should flow out of this depth of the wisdom and the riches and the knowledge of the gospel, here's how it affects marriage, beginning in verse nine. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I know some of you are like, well, tell me more about that. I, that, that sounds like, I, I, I've thought about that in my marriage from time to time, doing that. We'll, we'll explain that. And then verse 21 starts right where we started in verse 9. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, in a few moments, the mother of the bride is going to join me up here in just a moment because she has a few things to say to the potential bride and groom as we walk through this and just kind of share it out of our own lives and, and some things that we've learned, some implications of the gospel here as we try to unpack what this verse is saying to all of us who have chosen marriage. Here's the first thing we're going to learn, four things. First thing is this, marriage is a mirror. My marriage is a mirror. Look here in verse nine, he says, let love be genuine. Love doesn't ignore or pretend like marriage is easy. In order for marriage and love to be genuine, you have to be honest about the remaining gaps in our humanity, in our relationship, the unredeemed part of us. Marriage is hard, and yet love can be genuine even Love expressed toward an imperfect person. Love needs to be genuine. Love doesn't need to be faked. And so that's why he says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Do you understand that the person you are married to has some residual evil in them? You're like, you didn't, I didn't have to come to church to figure that out. I, I talk about that all the time. I, I've seen it, right? And you're, the person you're married to has some intrinsic good, maybe some good things that God has deposited in them, imputed righteousness that's now coming out. It's working itself out in the most practical areas of life. But here's what this also means for you and me. Your marriage partner is God's mirror to help you see some of the residual evil left in you so it would motivate you to change and to grow. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you husbands this morning got a glimpse of your wife within the first 15 seconds of her waking up? Did you get a glimpse? Did you take a look? All right. But then an hour later, did you see her? Let me ask you, was there any transformation that took place in the first 15 seconds and what happened in the next hour? Yes or no? How many of you guys are grateful for what happened in that hour, right? Do you realize there were thousands of dollars collectively spent on what we are seeing here this morning? A glorious transformation took place. There were hundreds of manpower, woman power hours that it took actually to transform, to change into the beautiful woman that showed up here at church. Now, do you know what sparked that transformation? A mirror because she stumbled in there and she looked and was like, it's time to get to work. I mean, this is, this is not, this is, I'm, nobody's gonna see this. This is not the public version of me, right? There's, that's the private version. There's some work that needs to, so, so here's the deal. Our marriage works exactly the same way. You and I have a mirror on a daily basis that we can look into to see what needs to change in us. Now, I've told you this before, I, 
I'm an only child, okay? I got married when I was 27. For 27 years, I did not have a mirror that bounced back to me the ugly that is me. But at the age of 27, God gave me a mirror. As a matter of fact, let me just invite my mirror to come up here on the platform with me here for a moment. And do you know what Andrea has been doing for the last 22 years? She's been exposing the residual evil that, that just leaks out of me from time to time. And she doesn't allow me to turn a blind eye to that stuff, to ignore that stuff, to pretend that stuff isn't there. Now, until God gives you this mirror, you might go through your whole life and not realize how ugly you actually are. And so God gives you a mirror to reflect back to you the things that still need to be done in your marriage. One of my favorite all-time marriage books is called Sacred Marriage. I've given Brooke and David a copy of Sacred Marriage. You have to read this before in the next 12 days to get the, the permission from the Father to, to, to actually marry you. So he, here's what Gary Thomas says in this book. And by the way, the, the subtitle of that book is, What If God Designed Marriage to Make Me Holy More Than to Make Me Happy? And this is what he says. I found there was a tremendous amount of immaturity within me that my marriage directly confronted. The key was that I had to change my view of marriage. If the purpose of marriage was simply to enjoy infatuation and make me happy, then I'd have to get a new marriage every two or three years. But if I really wanted to see God transform me from the inside out, I'd need to concentrate on changing myself rather than on changing my spouse. In fact, you might even say the more difficult my spouse proved to be, the more opportunity I would have to grow. Do you realize what he's saying? The person in this room that is married to the most difficult spouse. Let me just think about that for a minute. One of you would walk away with the prize, the most difficult spouse. I don't know who that would be, but somebody in here is the most difficult spouse. Whoever's married to that person has the most opportunity to grow, to change, and to reflect the nature of God in that marriage. And so marriage makes me better. The second part of verse 10 says, outdo one another in showing honor. And I just, I love this word honor. Honor just means placing high value on someone or something. So bringing everything you can think to honor them. And I bet you just did this naturally when you were dating. So think back to when you're dating and you would think for hours of ways to make them feel special or make them feel known to honor them. Then you get married and you have kids and it's just the dailyness of life and we just kind of throw honor out the window and yet we are supposed to be looking for ways to honor our spouse, to even honor our kids, to honor people that we are in relationship with. So I, I really like to serve. So I'd be just like serving all over our house and I'm thinking that he's feeling honored by this. And yet I kept noticing that we just had this disconnect. We were not connecting on this. So finally I just asked him, 
I said, I really want to honor you. Can you tell me what can I do to, to make you feel honored? And he just said, well, I feel honored when you laugh at my jokes. <laughs> and here I am exhausting myself trying to serve, and he's just wanting me to laugh at his jokes. Oh, she's like running so fast around the house. It's like, I'm funny. <laughs> Sit down. Sit here and tell me how funny I am. And so I would just encourage you just to ask, ask your spouse, how do you hear honor? What can I do to help you hear honor? And don't argue with what they say, just kind of listen. And then if that goes well, you can ask the second question, which is, what am I doing that makes you feel dishonored? Because we do that. And a lot of times we don't even know we're communicating dishonor to our spouses. So my marriage is a mirror. Here's the second thing. My marriage needs a magnificent obsession. Look at verse 12. Actually, verse 11. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. Do you see the word slothful there? Have you ever seen a sloth? They, they have one at the Potomatomy Zoo. We went there last week. The thing is ridiculous. I mean, it moves like an inch an hour when it's being chased by a leopard. You know, it's no, it, and my son, Scott, thinks it's his favorite animal. I'm like, you're not allowed to have a sloth as your favorite animal. Tiger, you know, shark, not a sloth. You can't be a sloth, okay? So it's, and it's biblical. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Now, you look at those three commands there. You're like, wait a minute. I thought you were talking about relationships. And all that's vertical. All that has to do with, with spiritual stuff. Exactly. Most people think that marriage problems are relational problems. 90% of marriage problems are not relational problems. They're spiritual problems. You've got to disconnect vertically with the Lord, and therefore you're not able to horizontally, missionally love your spouse. And your spouse does not need to be your obsession. No matter how awesome your spouse is, no matter how awesome you are, you are not as magnificent as your spouse needs you to be. And this is what happens so often with married couples. They look to one another for things God never designed another human being to be able to give them. And then they're disappointed with marriage. Why am I not happy in marriage? It's because you're looking to marriage to do something God never designed a marriage to do. You need something more magnificent than marriage to obsess over. You know the first husband and wife in the Bible? They made this mistake. They had a magnificent obsession with God, perfect environment. God walked with them in the cool of day, perfect intimacy with God. And then one day they saw a piece of fruit and I thought, well, that would make us happy. And they took the fruit. And you know what the result of that was? A curse came upon mankind. For guys, here's the curse. You get to earn your living by the sweat of your brow. How many of you lived under the curse this week? A little sweat coming down your brow this morning? Yeah, it's like you experienced the curse. And do you know what the part of the curse was for the woman? This is what God said. Your desire will be for your husband. In other words, you will look to your spouse 
and desire your spouse to provide things that your spouse is incapable of providing. And your spouse is just not magnificent enough to meet the deepest need in the human heart. You need something outside of the marriage to focus on. If you are a selfish couple looking to one another, you will actually cannibalize one another. I've tried to communicate this to Brooke and David. It's like you, you get just sitting around gazing into one another's eyes for six hours. That only lasts during dating. And then three, three weeks after you're married, you're like, why are we bored with one another? And why is this not as happy? You need to get your eyes on something other than your spouse. Obviously, you need to get your eyes on the magnificence of your Savior. When spouses selfishly look to one another to provide what only God can provide, it's like you have two ticks, no dog. It's not a great relationship. And so getting married and staying married is actually the overflow of the obsession we have with the love of God. Loving my spouse is primarily about loving God. And then my marriage becomes an act of worship to God, not dependent upon my spouse, spouse's performance. When I am obsessed with the love of God for me, I can risk being imperfectly loved by my spouse because whenever they fail to love me perfectly, it just gives me a greater obsession for the perfect love of God. And when I know I am perfectly loved by God, I can risk being imperfectly loved by my spouse. It's the gospel that gives me the power and the courage to lean in and make the ultimate commitment to give my life completely to my spouse. The reason why couples aren't getting married anymore is because they, they don't wanna take the risk that they would be loved imperfectly. And you are gonna be loved imperfectly. But if you have a magnificent obsession with the Lord, you can risk being imperfectly loved by your spouse. So verse 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be consistent in prayer, be constant in prayer. So just as part of being human, we all hope, we all put our hope in something as humans. Yesterday I was really hoping that it wouldn't rain, but it rained. And we put our hope in little things like that it won't rain, or we put our hope in big things like, God, can you change me? Can you change me from the inside out? Or can you change my husband? Or can you change my kid? We're all looking for things to put our hope in. Maybe for you, it's been a long season of trial and hardship, and you're just having to endure. You're just having to remain under. Both of those two things, hope and trials are things that we are to be constant in prayer about. That we're asking God, God, don't let me just put my hope in the horizontal. Let me put my hope in you vertically. So we're praying, God, would you change me? God, would you change this relationship issue? Would you give me the endurance to make it in the trial that I'm in? where it says be constant in prayer, I hope you are praying for your spouse. 
We have got to be praying for our spouses. If you are not, it may be that no one is. No one. And it is a tough world. Life is hard. We have got to be covering our spouse in prayer. So for me, I, um, I'll pray for Trent every day. I ask God to give him wisdom, to fill him with the spirit, to give him vision. But I don't want to just get stuck on the same things, just praying the same things over and over. Um, so what I do is just when I'm finished with my time in the word, whatever God's showed me that day in the scripture that I've prayed for myself, then I just pray it for Trent. I pray it for my kids. I pray it for our staff, for the whole church, so that I'm not just praying the same thing over and over. And maybe by the end of the year, I will have prayed like the whole Bible over him or something. So guys, let me, let me suggest to you too, that the matter of prayer is the greatest tool you have to win the heart of your wife back to you. For you to make a commitment never to let a 24-hour period of time go by without grabbing your wife by the hand and leading her out loud in prayer. Where she hears you talking to God now, it's not praying for her, it's praying with her. And if she wants to reciprocate, that's great. But you, as the leader, to take the initiative and to talk to God about what's going on in your life. And it doesn't have to be a 45-minute prayer. It doesn't have to have King James language in it. Oh, thou Lord of the intergalactic universe, we beseech thee on behalf of the universe. You know, none of that. Usually when I'm praying for Andrea, it sounds something like this. God, I pray for Andrea that you would give her a better husband. And God, would you do the work in me so that I could love her in a way that reflects your love for both of us? I mean, something like that. And to, guys, I'm telling you, if you would do that every day, it would change the atmosphere in your marriage. And your performance might not change at all. But as long as she knows you're talking to God and you're committed to following God, she may not be really committed to following you because you're such a loser in that area, but she knows God's not a loser. And if you're following him, she can follow God if you're following him. And so that changes the whole atmosphere. And so we're to be constant in prayer. And you have to have a thing with God if you're going to have a thing with your spouse. You remember how last week I told you about Mike and uh, Lynn Norred? who lived together for 11 years before they got married. They met the Lord first, and then they got married two weeks after they met the Lord. And uh, I, Mike called me on Tuesday. He said, Trent, what is that marriage definition that you're always using in church? And so I gave it to him. And I said, why, why, why did you need to use that? He said, well, I was talking with a coworker of mine. He's getting married this weekend, and I congratulated him. I'm like, oh, it's such a great thing. I'm just so happy you're doing it. What a big step, taking responsibility. It's so fantastic. And he said, the guy looked back at me. He says, ah, it's not a big deal. It's just a piece of paper. And Mike said, oh, no, it's not. And uh, he went talking about what, you know, this is, this is such a significant thing here. And I said, Mike, you need to take that guy out for chips and salsa and uh, help him understand, you know, this has got to happen before that. So you pray for Mike. Uh, a, lot of good, a lot of great things there. Number three, my marriage needs a mission. My marriage needs a mission. Look at verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. That's talking about working for Christ in the context of a local church, strapping responsibility on your marriage 
for maybe the other marriages in the church or some of the children in the church or some of the work or some of the prayer in the church contributing to the needs of the saints. And then obviously you could apply that to financial things, that part of what's happening with the family income is contributing to things outside of the marriage. And that is such a priority. When you invest in things outside of the marriage, now your hearts are drawn together toward the same thing. The last part says, seek to show hospitality. Now that is not talking about throwing a dinner party with your best friends. The word hospitality comes from the root word hospital. In other words, use your marriage to help heal wounded people. Your marriage is like a hospital. Seek to show hospitality and to invest in something outside of your marriage. Um, earlier, uh, we, we read verse 10 there, and it's a great verse there. It says, seek, it says, outdo one another in showing honor. And so one of the ways that you do this is by serving not only each other, but people outside of the marriage. And it becomes kind of a competition. So it, it, Andrea talked about the importance of placing high value on something or someone. And so let's say that uh, Andrea, you know, says something really compliment. Let's say she, she laughs at one of my jokes, okay? And I think, okay, she just honored me. Well, I can't let her outdo me. She's ahead now. <laughs> and so now I race into the kitchen and I, I find some dirty dishes. I start cleaning those dishes in there just as a way of showing honor. And she looks at that and is like, how dare you try to outdo me in showing honor? And she grabs a steak and starts grilling it out there on the back <laughs> patio. And I'm like, you're not going to outdo me. And I began to sweetly talk her in romantic ways. And I pick her up and start to head to the bedroom. We better stop at the illustration there. But if we, if we were to simply honor one another within the marriage, that would be the first step missionally to do what God wants us to do. Then we turn from one another and see what needs can we meet outside of this marriage. Again, if all you're ever doing are things face to face, just staring at each other, talking about each other, you are going to cannibalize each other. You've got to focus on something outside of the marriage. This week, 200 adults will be outnumbered by 400 children at Vacation Bible School. Many of those 200 adults are married. They're gonna to serve together. Brooke and David, in the week before they're married, are gonna throw their lives into Vacation Bible School. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a great way to start a marriage. Oh, yes, it is. I'm telling you what they will do shoulder to shoulder, not talking about one another, not talking about marriage, but working together toward a goal outside of the marriage will do more to bind them together than sitting at Starbucks for six hours talking about the intricate details of their lives. And so we need a mission outside of the marriage, obviously the great commission and making disciples and glorifying God in the context of a church is one great way to start. We don't need to jump over our own home, though, in our mission in order to get to the world. Um, it, a mission outside of our marriage can be kids. It's raising godly kids and just prioritizing family dinner time, prioritizing loving those kids and talking to 
to them about the gospel, um, prioritizing throwing graduation parties, just creating this unit as a family that we're not jumping over our mission inside our home to get to the world, but we are very missional in our marriage, inside our home. We're tag teaming together constantly with this. Yeah, it's one of the reasons we brought Scott into our family. It's like, we just, we'll throw another kid in the mix. That'll, you know, work together to fix that. So, <laughs> and if you need a kid, we'll loan one to you. You can work on that together as well. Here's the fourth thing. My marriage magnifies mercy. My marriage magnifies mercy. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. To give a blessing just simply means to give someone something better than they deserve. There are no enduring marriages without mercy. In the lifetime that you will be married, there will be thousands of minor offenses that must be covered by minor mercy. And in a lifetime of marriage, there will be several major offenses that will require you to cover it with major acts of mercy. Where there is no mercy, there is no marriage. Bless those who persecute you. And you may even feel persecuted at times in your marriage. And yet here's what's distinct about a Christian marriage. It covers hurtful things with mercy. Where do you get the power to do that? With a magnificent obsession with God's mercy on you. And so we pour out mercy because we have been shown mercy. We bless because we have been blessed. Jesus taught this in Luke chapter 6. This is what he said. He said, if you love someone who loves you, what advantage is that to you? What credit do you get for that? Why do you expect to get like a reward for that? You're loving somebody that loves you. He says even sinners do that. You don't even have to be a Christian to love somebody that loves you. But then he says this. He says, if you love your enemies, you show yourselves to be the sons of the Most High. The distinguishing mark of a Christian is you bless and you cover and you forgive. Why? Because you have been forgiven. And until you are obsessed with the mercy and the forgiveness and the gospel, you will not have the motivation to bless and to cover the hurts of another. Jesus said, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. It's the mercy of the Father that fuels mercy in the marriage. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Why? God gives you a marriage partner so you never have to weep alone and you never have to rejoice alone. Verse 16 says, live in harmony with one another. I don't know a whole lot about music, but what I understand is that when you're singing harmony, you have two people singing a different note. That sounds like it would be a disaster. And yet, if they're singing the same lyric in the same rhythm and they are harmonizing, it makes a beautiful sound. You know what that means? You're going to be married to somebody 
who is very different than you. And yet you can live in harmony and pursue oneness together. At the end of verse 16, it says, don't be haughty, associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. Marriage's primary purpose is to confront pride and the idol of personal autonomy in my life. The haughtiness and the fact that I think I am wiser than anybody else is confronted in the context of marriage. The reason why people don't, the reason why people think marriage is obsolete is because they're unwilling to give up their right to personal autonomy. We don't want to lose any freedom. Anything that would take my freedom is seen as a threat. So I want to distance myself from that. And people even that live together is like, yeah, we can kind of share a few things, but you're not taking away my personal autonomy. Why don't you just stop being so haughty and so wise in your own eyes and put yourself under the person that you're with and serve them, even somebody who is lowly. And then verse 17. Verse 17 says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And as I'm standing up here listening to Trent and, and even reading that last verse, I'm thinking, this is hard stuff. I mean, we are sitting here telling you to honor, to forgive, to show mercy, and you are all sitting there thinking, of some really tough stuff, some hurts, some betrayals, um, maybe being left, maybe having, having that same thing continue in your marriage continually, and you're just sitting here thinking, how do I do this? How do I forgive? How do I honor this person? How do I continue to show mercy? And Trent was just telling us the only way that we can do this is we've got to lift our eyes up and see the blessing, see the forgiveness that God has given us. And then we can take that blessing and bend it out to those that we're trying to love, that we're trying to live with. Um, the definition of forgiveness it's just refusing to require payment for, from someone for the damage that they have caused. And so when you're sinned against, when you're hurt, all of a sudden it creates a gap in your life. It creates a hole and you're just stuck with that. Um, what do you do with it? For me, I've just had to go to the Lord and say, carve out some time. I know the kids are gonna be busy. I just carve out some time and say, God, I'm not getting up. I'm not leaving your presence until I've forgiven. God, would you work this through in my heart till I've fully forgiven? And then when I can get up and it comes back into my mind, every time it comes back in my mind, I'll have to say, nope, I dealt with that with Jesus. I'm not going down that road in my mind. I'm just stopping it right there. It's been covered. It's been forgiven. But then I'm still left with this gap. I'm still left with this empty space where the hurt was. And what do I do with that? You just go back to the Lord again and say, God, you are good. I can't fill this void, but you can. Would you help me to seek your face? Help me to look to you to fill in this gap where, that has been broken, the thing that's been stolen or taken. Would you do that for me, Lord? Another definition is forgiveness is releasing someone from the debt they owe you 
and treating them as if they don't owe you anything. We had a situation, um, it's been going on for quite a while, but even this week I was praying about it and talking to the Lord about it. And I, I was just so angry about what was happening and what was going on. And I was kind of telling the Lord what I wanted him to do to fix the debt that this person owed. And the Lord just spoke so sweetly to my heart. And he said, Andrea, you don't know what you think you know. You think you see the whole situation and you think you know exactly what needs to happen. You don't know what you think you know. And as I kept thinking that over, I was like, well, there is one who does know. It's him. God in his sovereignty, God in his wisdom, he sees the whole situation perfectly. He knows what needs to happen in that situation. I don't. And I can trust him in that situation for him to do what's best. It leads us to our next verse, verse 18 and 19. Verse 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And that is our responsibility to do everything we can do to mend the relationship, to love, to be like Jesus. But there are just some people who do not want the situation resolved. They don't want to be at peace. So we have to do all we can and leave it in the Lord's hands. Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. When we think about forgiving or leaving something, many times we think, well, I don't wanna forgive because I don't wanna let that person off the hook. They're not gonna have any consequences or have any responsibility, but really all we're doing is we're just letting them off our hook. And we don't know everything anyway. And we're leaving them on God's hook, the only one who does know it all, the only one who's seen the whole situation and knows exactly how things need to work out. Verse 20 says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. You would think you'd want to starve him. He says, if he's thirsty, give him a drink, refresh him. A lot of times the reason that our spouse is not gracious to us is because they're hungry for love, they're hungry for security, they're thirsty for something that may be outside of their control and maybe they're bringing in their own hurt and because of that they're being very hurtful. Our job is to serve and to minister to their needs. And let me just say this, to express mercy and to give grace and to forgive does not mean enabling bad behavior and putting yourself in an unsafe situation. That's a completely different issue. Forgiveness is about a vertical transaction between you and God to release someone from the debt that they owe you. That doesn't necessarily mean that they've automatically gained your trust again. That may take years to repair. And so there's nuances here, but for most of us here, we're just simply talking about the day-to-day -day hurts that require blessing and covering. And, and I need to say all of that before I read this verse. In doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. You're like, tell me more about that. Where, where could I get some of those and put those on his head? <laughs> now, what was that talking about? Listen, uh, back in ancient Israel, the way that they did uh, metal work or like a blacksmith, you would have an intense heat of fire burning coals. They would bring this hard metal and over the burning coals, the heat would begin to soften the metal so that it would become moldable and pliable again. Do you know what he's trying to tell us here? 
It's your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, your acts of kindness that actually affect change in a hard heart. That's what changes him. That's what changes her. It makes them soft because they do not understand how in the world you could be so gracious in response to so much hurt. That's what gets the attention of a very dark world. And that's why he says in verse 21, this is how you overcome evil with good. Now, I want you to stand right now. Everybody's standing. If you are married, I want you to hold hands with your spouse. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. I want to give you just a moment to respond to the teaching of God's Word here. Would you thank God right now for the mirror that He has given you in your spouse? the tool that God wants to use to show you the unfinished business in your life? And then would you renew your vertical, magnificent obsession with the Lord? Thank Him for His love and His grace, His forgiveness for you. And then would you ask God to give you a mission beyond your marriage that you would partner together for the purpose of fulfilling the Great Commission, making disciples, glorifying God. And then finally, that your marriage would be filled with mercy. Maybe you could even release the hurts, the debts that you feel like your spouse owes you and recommit yourself to love. Father, thank you for the reminder of how loved we are that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us as an expression of your love and God I pray that that would bend itself out toward our spouses and give us the humility to see the unfinished business that needs to take place in our own hearts and by grace change us through the gift that is marriage we pray in Jesus name Amen